Awesome. Well, welcome uh, to River Ridge. So glad that you all are here. And um, today is one of my, my favorite days. It feels like Christmas and Easter coming in in June. Just celebrating Big Kick. It's Dollar Club Sunday. Um, it is sad that it is Sarah's last Sunday here. Um, quick story about that before I jump into the message. But so uh, you all probably saw that Sarah is in a wheelchair. And so probably 18 months ago, uh, she and I started to play tennis, and so I get in a wheelchair, and we battle it out, and um, when we first started, I would beat her, because I know tennis, but couldn't figure out the wheelchair thing very well, uh, and I'd beat her like 7-5 or 6-4, and then we kind of started to go back and forth, and she and I played our last match um, on Friday morning, and she whipped me 6-0-6-1, so... Yeah, she learned this like down the line, backhand, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up, so. Hey, uh, let's talk about Big Kick for a second. Man, what an absolute great opportunity. I think we've got some pictures for you here uh, of Big Kick, and just what a great opportunity that we as a church have to share the gospel with about 300 kids. This message that God loves you, God gave his son for you, and that we can believe in him and receive him into our lives. That's an incredible message that a whole bunch of kids heard this past week. And I just love that we have that opportunity. And probably one of my favorite things about Big Kick, I love the coaching, I love the upfront stuff. But one of my favorite things is the small groups of coaches sitting in a circle with kids talking about Jesus. Just asking them questions about life, asking them questions about what do you believe about Jesus? What do you think about what you just heard? I love that aspect of Big Kick because that's really what a lot of what Riverridge Church is about. We're about small groups and talking about our faith and what does that look like? Um, and then the other big part of Big Kick that I love is the work crew that we had dozens and dozens of folks at each different location, and they were serving snacks, uh, but they were also cleaning the bathrooms and picking up trash and setting the goals at before stuff and picking up afterwards, and just incredible work crew at all three locations, and I love that God kind of uses all of this together. <clears throat> if you're visiting this morning uh, because of Big Kick and your kids came, you want to, hey, I want to check out this church, I'm so glad that you are here. And you're probably wondering, like, is this a normal Sunday? And this is actually a pretty normal Sunday with the band and the talk and a video and things like that. Um, but here's what we're about at River Ridge Church, is we exist to help you take your next step in your journey with God, no matter where you are. So if you're just not sure if you believe this whole Jesus thing and resurrection thing and heaven thing and, and all that kind of stuff, we're, we're here to help you to investigate, to help you to take steps towards that if that's where you want to go. On the other side, if you've been a follower of God for decades and decades, we are here to help you take your next steps in your journey with God. And everybody in between, there's always a next step to be taken. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not sure what my next step is, come find me. Come find Dave who's up here before. We'll help you to take that next step. Now, if you're visiting this morning, or maybe you haven't been here in a long, long time, uh, we're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the last. And we're doing it in two ways. One is we're doing it here on Sunday mornings as we go through the Bible. But the other is we have a reading plan, uh, which is called Relevant, a Relevant Devotion Guide. And basically, this takes you from Genesis to Revelation, reading about five chapters a week, 
Uh, and you're not reading every single word, but you're getting a great picture of the Bible from beginning to end. So if you're here this morning and you don't have one of these, grab one from the table out in the lobby. <clears throat> um, and then don't start on January 1st. Start on today's reading, which is June 18th, and just keep going from there. It's a great way to read the Bible and to kind of understand God's overall story. So this morning we are going to be in Psalm 22. So if you brought a Bible, open up to Psalm 22. If you have it on your phone, uh, open up to, on, to Psalm 22. I encourage you, it's one of those things where you're going to want to kind of follow along as we look, because we're also going to look at a couple other verses. Uh, if you don't have a phone that has a Bible or a, a paper Bible, it will be on the screen behind me. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, just for the worship and the opportunity to enter in and to be in your presence God, as we look at these words in Psalm 22, I pray that you would bring them to life, that you would bring them to understanding in our lives this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to wrestle with a question. And the question is this. What do you do when theology and life collide? What do you do with what you believe about God and how God is supposed to act in God's goodness when that collides with life? And life doesn't always match up. Last week we looked at Psalm 1 and we talked about the blessed life. But the fact is we look at life sometimes and life is not always blessed. Life is not always happy. And we go, how does that fit with what we think about God? Because we, we have this image of God that God is great, and God is good, and God is holy, and God is powerful, right? That's our view, and those things are all true about God. We even sang a song that focused to, this morning on the goodness of God, the goodness of God. But yet, sometimes we look around, and life doesn't seem to be so good, you know, we can, we can look kind of on the big stage and we see famine and things like that that happen around the world. <clears throat> or we look and we see sickness, maybe in our own family or in somebody else's family. Or we see atrocities in this world, terrorist acts or crimes. And, and sometimes there's crimes and nobody gets prosecuted for these crimes. That doesn't seem fair. That's not quite fair. And so our theology, what we believe about God, collides with our experiences in life. And how do we deal with that? And sometimes it happens on a much more personal lever, level, where we say, I know God wants me to forgive people, so I'm going to forgive this person, and then I forgive this person, and then they wrong me or they do the same thing, or they do something worse. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would God say forgive him, and then this happens? Or maybe you're in a relationship, a, a marriage or a strained relationship, and you're like, okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to love this person and care for this person, and you do your part, and it's not reciprocated. And then your wife walks out on you, and then your mom won't talk to you anymore, and then your kid doesn't want anything to do with you. Well, that doesn't make sense. Those are the collisions of theology and life and what happens when they collide. So Psalm 22, which we're going to look at, is a collision of life 
and theology. And we're going to look at it this morning. And if, you're, if you've never kind of experienced that of life and theology and what I believe about God and life colliding, then consider yourself blessed or lucky or maybe naive, right? But I think most of us have walked through something like that. And maybe you're walking through something like that right now. Or maybe you're not. And maybe this message is for you to internalize and then to share with somebody else because you know that they're at a place where theology and life are colliding. And so Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You see, the psalmist is saying, life is colliding with what I believe about God. God, where are you in this? You've forsaken me. I'm doing life the way that I thought I was supposed to live life. I'm making the decisions of Psalm 1 that I thought I was supposed to make, but yet you're far off me. You've forsaken me. Or another word, another way that that's put sometime is, I'm left alone. I'm here all alone, God, going through my trouble, going through my pain, going through my disappointments, going through struggles, and where are you? So that's how the psalmist, David, felt in Psalm 22. Now, I want to look and kind of keep a finger in Psalms, or just keep there, and then you can read this text um, from the screen behind me. But I want to talk about Jesus for a second. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He healed He loved, he taught, he encouraged, he comforted. He lived a perfect life. If there was ever anyone that didn't deserve to have difficulty in life, it was Jesus. But yet, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He was arrested by his own people, the Jews, and he was sentenced to death being innocent by the Romans. And so on the cross, Jesus says these words. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, the exact same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's pointing back to Psalm 22. He just quotes the first line. It's kind of like a footnote that says, see also Psalm 22. And so we're going to keep reading through Psalm 22, and we're going to see a number of parallels. We're going to see that what happens and what, what occurs in what's written in Psalm 22 also is happening on the cross. And we're going to kind of put three things together. We're going to put Psalm 22 together this morning with the own difficulties and pain in our own lives and what happens to Jesus on the cross. So Psalm 22 continues. It says this, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So in the first verse, he expresses this, I feel forsaken, I feel abandoned by God. And then in the second verse, he's saying, God, why are you not answering my prayers? I'm crying out day and night, but you are not answering my prayers. You know, when it comes to prayer 
and especially, specifically, when it comes to prayers that God doesn't answer for us or that God doesn't answer in the way that we want, we struggle with that. Because I think in our mind we have this sort of mistaken theology that if I pray hard enough, and if I pray frequently enough, and if I pray with enough faith, and if I do not doubt, then God will answer my prayers. And that's kind of the, the, the way that we work, right? If I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, then God will. But the problem is that that's not who God is. Does God answer our prayers? Absolutely. Is God obliged, or does God answer every one of our prayers? No. Sometimes he doesn't. Because you see, God is not a genie in a lamp. God is not like we just rub the God lamp and out comes God and he says, what do you want? And we get our three wishes. God does not work that way. You know, sometimes when our prayers go unanswered, God is trying to teach us something. And oftentimes when God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want in the timing that we want, we ask this question. We say, where is God? Why isn't God answering my prayers? But I think a better question for us to ask is a different question. The question is, what is God wanting to teach me through this unanswered prayer? Because that's something that can really help us. It's not what's wrong with God. It's how or what is God teaching me? Then verse 3, it continues. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. These three verses that I just read, that's a description of God. That is a description of the theology of God, so to speak. You are holy. You are trustworthy. You are the rescuer. That is what we believe about who God is. He is all of those things. That's our theology of God. But then it takes a bit of a different turn, beginning in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. It says that they mocked him. They insulted him. This is the psalmist writing. But then here's what we see happens on the cross. Verse 39, Matthew 27. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Some of you all know that Stacey and I went to Israel a couple of weeks ago. We spent two weeks in Israel um, and learned a ton. A bunch of you have asked, hey, can we hear about the trip? And I'll kind of give snippets here and there as they come relevant in the messages that I give. Uh, but next Sunday night at 5, if anybody wants to come, we'll do a little slideshow. What I did on my trip to Israel. Um, but share some stuff that we learned and, and sites that we went. If you want to be a part of that, that'll be next Sunday at 5 um, here at the church. But one of the places that we went, um, obviously, was where Jesus was crucified. And, and one of the neat things about being in Israel is just seeing how things fit together geographically. Like, oh, this is really close. Oh, that's super far away. Oh, you can see this from there. Those types of things came into focus for me. And one of the things that was interesting, I'd always pictured the crucifixion of Jesus like 
out, you know, a half a mile or a mile away from Jerusalem. Because I know that Jesus was, you know, tried in Jerusalem, but I, I kind of assume that they, you know, put him on a road farther out away. But where they crucified Jesus is like maybe two or three hundred yards at most away from this one of the city gates leading out to and into Jerusalem. And Jesus being crucified there was very intentional because the Romans were occupying Israel, right? And so the, they were dominating the Jews and they just wanted to keep the peace and they would keep the peace at all costs. And so part of it was just threatening the Jews. And so Jesus was crucified just outside the city on the road that comes into Jerusalem, right? And he was crucified there along with the two other people because the Romans were sending a very loud and clear message as you had these people dying in agony on, as people traveled into Jerusalem. And their message was this, you do not mess with Rome. You mess with Rome, that's what happens to you. And that's why they were right next to the city gate. Now, this happened during Passover, or right before Passover. So you have all these people who travel from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so you have these crowds going by, going by. And so it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So it wasn't like six people went by. It was hundreds, if not thousands of people walking by Jesus during this time. Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So there's a lot of pronouns in there. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in God. And then we read this from the crucifixion of Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. It's pretty astounding. The exact words that were in Psalm 22 are exactly what people were saying as they passed by him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. But they said it in a mocking type of tone. I want you to imagine something, okay? I want you to imagine that you have been um, arrested for a crime, right? A crime that you didn't commit. And let's just say whatever crime you want to say that you were arrested for, but it's a, it's a big one. It's an embarrassing one, right? It, it, it's armed robbery. It's rape. It's sexual molestation. It, it's something like that type of crime, right? It's not just jaywalking, right? So you've been arrested for that, and you're in the courtroom, and there's all these people like, man, he was such a good soccer coach for Big Kick, and now he's been arrested, right? She serves the Gatorade so well at Big Kick, right? It's that type of thing. Everyone's like, how could this person be arrested? And then the trial begins, and the words come out about what's happened. But there's one person there, and that person is the person in your life that you love the most, and they love you. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your daughter. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. And that person is at the back of the courtroom, right? And they're watching go on. And then you're up there in the front of the courtroom. And you look at that person. And when other testimony is shared, they frown, shake their head, and they walk out of the courtroom. 
that one person that you thought believed in you. That's what happens at this moment on the cross is God turns his back on Jesus because Jesus is covered with sin. He has our sin upon him. And God turns his back in the same way that whoever you picture in that courtroom scene turns his back or her back on you. You could see why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a pointer towards Psalm 22, but it was also just a feeling of desperation. And maybe you feel that way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then it continues on, verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Jesus died, as you know, by crucifixion. And so they would nail his hands and his feet to the cross. They would dig a hole, and then they would take the cross, and they would lift it up on the edge of the hole, and then it would drop down. And when it hit the bottom of the hole, about 18 inches down, the person who's being crucified, their joints would pop out of socket because of the pounding, and their shoulders would come out of socket. And he says, and all my bones are out of joint. You know, I look at this story, and, and to give you a little bit of a timeline, Psalm 22 was probably written sometime around 1,000 B.C., okay? And it talks about crucifixion, and we're going to see some more points to crucifixion. It was written about 1,000 B.C., right? It wasn't till 400 years later in 600 B.C. that crucifixion was even invented. And then Jesus is crucified after the Romans basically perfected crucifixion. All of that, a thousand years before Jesus dies, and even 400 years before crucifixion is even invented. Then it continues in verse 15. It says, My strength is dried up like a pot sherd, and my tongue sticks to, the, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So he's thirsty. And then we read this in John 19. It says, And Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy from a thousand years before of Psalm 22. He knew he was fulfilling that. And so Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He was putting that together. I want to put another connection together for us, and this is going to take us back to February. If you weren't here, that's fine, but back in February, we talked about the Passover celebration, right? And that was the, the celebration uh, and the kind of the ceremony, if you will, when the Jews left uh, Egypt. And they were, what they were to do is they were to sacrifice a Passover lamb, and then they were to take a bowl, and they were to take... Um, uh, put the blood of the, from the Passover lamb on the frame of a door. And it says this, this is how it puts it in Exodus chapter 12. It says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, that's the top of the door frame, and the two posts with the blood that is in the basin. Okay, and I want, to, I want you to see something here, right? So it says with, in, in Exodus about the Passover, you're going to take a hyssop branch, 
and you're going to dip it in blood, which is what color? Red, right? And you're going to put it on the top of the door frame. You're going to reach up and do that. If we go back a verse to John, there was wine, and it says they took a hyssop branch, dipped it in wine, which is what color? Red, and lifted it up and put it up to Jesus. All of that was part of God's plan. The imagery is there. You see, for years and years and years, for centuries, the Jews had been sacrificing a Passover lamb to take away their sins. And now Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He was put on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And that gesture with the hyssop branch in Exodus and that gesture with the hyssop branch recorded at the crucifixion puts those two things together for us. And it continues on in verse 16. It says, For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This is, again, a thousand years before Jesus is crucified. 400 years before crucifixion even exists as a form of torture and death. And they pierce his hands and his feet. Then verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We read this in the account of the crucifixion. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. A thousand years difference. You know, over and over, we see from Psalm 22 to the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we go all the way back to Exodus, and there was this connection there. You know, and I look at those, and I'm like, how can anybody see those and not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross that we can have life through? Like the, the chances of that just happening are just too great. You see, God had a plan. God had a plan. And the same is true for you, is that God has a plan. You may be going through difficulty. You may be going through disappointment or struggles. But God had a plan from Psalm 22 to the crucifixion of Jesus. It was all within what God was doing. It's an interesting, if you look at Psalm 22, and you're going to actually need your paper Bible to do this because it's not on the screen. But if you look at verse 1, right above verse 1, it has a little thing. And a lot of the Psalms have this little sort of like orientation sort of line. But typically it's not considered verse 1. But it says this. It says, a Psalm of David. So David wrote and gave it to the choir master. And then the Psalm begins, right? So it's kind of like the, the preview sort of thing, I guess you'd say. But here's what's interesting and, and this is a conversation that, I'm not saying this happened, but this is sort of how I play this out in my mind, right? So this is a psalm of David, and he gives it to the choir master, right? And so David writes this thing out, and he wrote a lot of psalms, and that, that little kind of preview title is in a lot of the different psalms, but uh, he, he writes that out, and he, gives, he writes out the whole psalm. He gives it to the choir master, and he goes, what do you think, Gerald? We'll just call him Gerald. I'm sure that was his name. What do you think, Gerald? And Gerald, the choir master, is there reading it. And he goes, Man, I, I like this, but 
This is kind of weird. Like, what are you talking about? The hands are pierced in my side. And, and they're like, there's parts of this that don't really make sense. What, what is that all about, David? And David goes, you know, Gerald, I'm not really sure. I just have this sense from God that he wants me to put this in. I think there's some pain involved, and I'm in pain. I don't know exactly, but I just have this overwhelming sense that God wants me to, to put this in. And so the choir master goes, okay, I'll set it to music. I'll get the choir singing it. Again, I don't know that that conversation happened, but to me, I kind of picture that disconnect between David going, I'm writing this, but I don't even understand fully why. So we ask this question, why God? Why don't you rescue me? Jesus asked that same question. Why God, why don't you rescue me? Why have you forsaken me? And then towards the end of the psalm, the psalmist looks backwards with an understanding. And it says this. Verse 23. It says, you who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. For from you my praise in the great, for, me, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. That there's resolution, that there's rescue as he looks back. God did hear the cries of Jesus from the cross. But he answered them not on the cross, but from the tomb, as he raised Jesus back to life. God brought glory out of pain from the cross to the grave to raise to new life. And the same is true with us that God will meet us in our pain, God will meet us in that time of difficulty. It may not turn out the way that we want in the time and the way you want, but God is there in that. I want to close with a kind of a summary and a practical application. Um, and, and I'm going to give you three points, and I've already talked about these three points, but I didn't kind of label them as three points. And if this just helps you to remember, the first is this. Understand that God is not a genie in a bottle. God cannot be controlled by us. He doesn't always answer our prayers according to our needs, according to our timing, according to our wants and desires. Here's the second thing is, know that God often will teach us through our difficult circumstances. God will often teach us through our unanswered prayers. And to ask that question, what is it that God is teaching me about myself, about my character, about my outlook on life through whatever it is that you're facing? And here's the third, is know that God has not abandoned you. God had not abandoned Jesus on the cross. There was a greater plan. God has a plan for you in place. It may not be on your timing. You may not know what it is. But God has a plan in place. He has not abandoned you. You know, when we started talking at the beginning, I said, what do we do when theology and life collide? 
And the fact is, I, I framed it that way, but the fact is, theology and life don't collide. When we don't have an accurate view of God, then it's a collision. But when we understand who God is and what he's up to and that we can't control him and that he has plans that are bigger than we can understand, then there's no collision between theology and life. That God is control and God has the whole thing under his control. Even if you don't see it and even if you don't understand it, even if I don't see it, and even if I don't understand it, God still has this. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Psalm 22. Thank you for the gift of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, and that when we place our faith in him, that we have forgiveness of sins, and that we can live for eternity with you in heaven, and that we can live an abundant life here on earth. Thank you for those gifts. And God, this week, as we encounter difficulties of life, would you bring this to mind? That we can cry out, my God, my God, where are you? But we know that you are near, that you have a plan in place that we don't see and that we might not even understand. But we thank you for that, and we trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.